In this episode, we're answering some of your questions and addressing common challenges first home buyers face, particularly around deciding where to buy. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to move it along and become homeowners. But most importantly, it is for home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mum. And that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 45 years experience to share with you and bucket loads of stories and avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure you get unbiased and real information you can rely on. We've got loads of free tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll get access to our free webinar, How to Buy Your First Home with the Right Amount of Debt. You'll also find the holy grail of home buying education, Your First Home Buyer Guide, the online course for people who want to be educated home buyers. We have created this for you to help you get on the right path to home ownership for your first home and beyond. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field who takes the time to understand your personal situation. We've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change rapidly. So always check with the relevant government authority or your trusted advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today, we're answering some of your questions, and we've chosen a selection that are specifically around the choice of location. But before we get into that, there's a special house behind you this week, Megan. I know exactly what this is, but... Well, you've been to visit. I have. So, twice. For those that have been playing along, I started renovating um, my 1930s Ashgrovian cottage uh, in September last year. This is the completed rear of the house. Now, I haven't quite got the backyard, but I'm slowly just each week give you a new photo of different areas. Um, If you're watching on YouTube, then looks good, right? I love it. It's fantastic. I love it. You're very happy. It's been uh, the product of a very long... It's been a long journey. And uh, it's inspiration for you all Yes, just remember, I did stepping stone strategy. So I started with the worst house in an okay suburb, but had really good fundamentals. And the stepping stone strategy got me to where I was. Am now. Am now. Yes. With a little hump in the middle of the road. Little hump in the middle of the road. But now you've got this beautiful home and I, I think the pool, did the water go in? Oh, yeah. First week of the holidays, the kids were in there. They were having a ball. In fact, when it was knee deep, they were in it. It's Brisbane. You can't live without a pool in Brisbane. <laughs> oh, so good. So good. So this, we're not trying to rub your nose in it, guys. This is this is something to look forward yeah, to. More when you're inspirational than, you know, you're not going to be here tomorrow. Remember, I'm 50 next year, so it's taken a long time to get to my dream home. That's very true. And even for those of you that are pushing the limits on age and not exactly old enough to be our children. Uh, it's not too late for you either. All right, let's kick off. First question is from Joel, right? He says, I'm only at the beginning of seeing how much I can borrow, but the biggest dilemma for me is to what to look for, i.e. apartment, townhouse, or even a house. Pros and cons, etc., based on suburbs and costs on the Gold Coast. So 
Is the Gold Coast specific question? Yeah, it is, but it's kind of not. Like it's it's almost like anyone could ask this question because, you know, there, there's a big um, basis upon which um, a lot of people need to start their journey. Yeah. And what Joel is looking for here is price, right? So he's going, I'm going through the pre-approval process. I'm working out how much I can afford. But then he's looking at property, which is, is it an apartment? Is it a unit? He's kind of worked out roughly where he's going to be, which is position, which is the Gold Coast. But now he needs to narrow down to the actual suburb. And Veronica, this is our 3P process that we teach in your first home buyer guide, but also you can do as a standalone tutorial. Yes, you can. The where to buy tutorial. Where to buy tutorial. Because there's no answer to this question. It is a... Well, there is, but no one set answer. Yes, yes. (laughs) It's a connection between all of the things that have to come into play for you as an individual, and that's how you arrive at the answer. Um, So, you know, in most cases, you do want to kind of try and buy for a property with land content, but not in all cases because budget, price, what you can afford, it's so important. Exactly right. But if you can afford more but you're buying a unit just because it's cheaper, um, but you could afford a townhouse or a house, you know, that's not usually advisable. And particularly in an area like the Gold Coast, which for a long time has had a huge amount of supply coming on into the the unit space. And so this is one thing where the answer is specific to location and you've got to look around you as to what is happening in the area. So anywhere that you might ask this particular question, uh, you have to think, okay, how are units doing in terms of growing in price in this area? Because if they're in an area where there's masses of oversupply, potentially buying a unit, could you get stuck on the you know the lowest rung on the ladder? Can't get off it. That's it. So when we talk about those three Ps, they're really important. They have to be all looked at in, in concert with each other. And the location part of that or the, the position part of that is very, very important because that's that's an important part of the equation in terms of how good an asset it is, right? Mm. And it doesn't just mean, Veronica, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to pick up there because it doesn't just mean that you should buy a house with land because that's better than a unit in an oversupplied unit market because on the Gold Coast, there are certain areas where house and land packages are oversupplied and there is still land to be released. So it's not just one or the other and that's a difficult thing why you have to go through quite a process to, to work out how those three things come together. Because if you buy into an area where there's a lot of land still to be released and you're buying just because you think land is the answer, then actually the oversupply might be in having too many of the same as what you'll end up with or the house and land kind of package. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, if your budget will not stretch beyond a unit, so that really limits what you're going to be able to buy, then there's some questions that you should be asking yourself. Um And one of them is how long would it take for you to save enough for a townhouse or a house? So is there an option for you just to be a bit more patient? Um, And look, the answer, once again, it's not going to be the same for everybody. Some people won't be able to outsave the market. And so for them, it's going to be a unit. Other people, well, yeah, if I've sort of knuckled down in the next two or three years, I'm going to be in a completely different position. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, a really important question. And another one is if you end up buying a unit, how long will it suit your needs for? You might be single and living living a footloose and fancy-free life now, but perhaps coupling up is coming up. A one-bedroom unit might not suit. That's it. And also, like Megan was saying before, can you find a unit that's not in an area of oversupply? 
So, um, and also is that, you know, that trade-off of, of not buying strata or not buying a townhouse, for example, buying house instead, and but on a house and land package out in the, at the very edges where there's lots of more subdivisions coming, you know, townhouse closer into all the amenities, the action close to the beach, all those sorts of things might actually be a better proposition. So there's no one set answer, but it's a great question to kick you off and start you thinking about this. And as, men- as Megan mentioned, that where to buy workshop or the where to buy tutorial is uh, is a really handy tool to help you work through those questions. Starts all of those juices flowing and those thought processes and thinking about not just rather than asking people what suburb should I buy in, where should I be looking, it actually makes you look inward and work out what, what that balance is for you. All right. So let's have a look at question number two. I'm a first home buyer and I'm looking to purchase my first property in Sydney. Veronica's stomping ground. My max budget is 750000 My main challenge is to decide whether to buy an apartment. Is it a good choice? I really like the lifestyle they offer, but I don't think they have a great return in the future. My budget is small for purchasing a house or medium-high, uh, medium-rise building unless I start searching in more regional areas. Any resources, tips would be helpful. helpful. Well... Sydney is the most expensive city in Australia. So first home buyers really have to face reality in that a unit might be your only pathway into the market. And certainly if you want to be in Sydney with a small or a small budget, with $750,000 might be a big budget somewhere else, but for Sydney it's tiny, unfortunately. It's relative. Yeah. <laughs> it is all relative. Then a unit can be a good choice. So you don't just rule out all units because generally speaking, units aren't as good as houses, you have to then be careful about the type of unit you buy and the location in which you buy a unit, as we mentioned before, about looking for oversupply and not looking at huge complexes. And certainly, I would say aim to look at a small complex in an area where there is not a huge oversupply of new apartments. Um, so you sort of look at an area where there's more of that mid, mid-rise mid building. Um, one of our students, Sandra, has bought in a suburb of Sydney, which is on a train line, that's that that type of property and within the property's your not on the train line, but no, the suburb not, is. no, the yeah. suburb is walking distance to the train line, not buying on a train line. Um, you know, within that budget, it is a is an uh, I guess a outer suburb of Sydney, but it's a very well established suburb of Sydney where there's not there can't be more suburbs, you know, created close by because there's no land left. Um, but you know, and that's certainly within your budget. So there are options. Um, yes, you're right that houses do typically outperform units, so that is something that you do have to deal with. But you can certainly um, certainly still buy good assets if you're being very careful, and you've got to be super fussy about certain things. Yeah, natural light. We talk about that all the time, Veronica. In an apartment, sometimes you're really quite locked in on all sides apart from one viewing platform. So natural light, privacy, security – Outlook, it doesn't have to be a view, but have a think about what you're actually looking at from a resale perspective and also from your amenity and how you like to live. If you like to to, to sit on the balcony and have a cup of coffee in the morning, what are you going to be looking at? The brick um, wall. And yeah, is that going to be, you know, if it's adjoining commercial, are you going to be hearing the generators, you know, at all sorts of times a day or the trucks coming and going, those sorts of things. And, and certainly, Veronica, I know that you would – advise in Sydney to avoid one betters if you can? I really would. I mean, if you can look for a two-better where the second bedroom is big enough for queen-size bed as well, because there's a lot of two-bedrooms where the little the second bedroom is really tiny, 
Um, so you want to sort of maximize your options. This is all about resale. I always buy, always encourage you to think about when one day you're going to sell, right? So you want to maximize your opportunity to have as many buyers as possible. So appeal, that appeal to future buyers. Exactly right. Particularly owner-occupiers. Yeah. And so you might appeal to somebody who's a single parent with one child or you might appeal to somebody who's an investor and wants to rent out, um, you know, have flatmates, uh, renting out rooms that are equal sizes or you might want to appeal to somebody who's a downsizer who's used to having a, a more space. There's there's ways in which you can sort of, even with a two-bedroom unit, make sure you don't narrow down your field of future buyers. So these are really important things to think about. And certainly, um, you know, there are good apartment options and yes, you're right that typically a house will appreciate more in value than an apartment. But if you buy very carefully, you buy apartment very carefully, you can still do very well with apartments. Yeah, um, it's an interesting one because Brisbane has been quite oversupplied in the the uh, two-bedroom, two-bathroom market apartment for, for some time, but we are st- seeing prices starting to firm up and and grow um, at, a, at a very slow rate. But um, our team actually assessed a property for uh, an owner-occupier with a limited budget only the weekend, I think it was, and in terms of appeal, there was so much about that property that appealed, even though it was only a two-bedroom apartment, there was so much about it that appealed and it was scarce for a number of reasons. There were 100 people lined up for the open house. The last 20 actually couldn't inspect the property because the tenant had set a limit of 30 minutes for this inspection only so that the last 20 people didn't get to go in. They had 25 offers on that. The price guide, well, in Brisbane, you can't have a price guide. I apologise. The asking price was three fifty, and it went for over $410,000. So there are exceptions to the rule. You've got to find those unique aspects of things that are perhaps, you know, generally thought to be oversupplied you've got to, supplied you've got to find those unique aspects that can't be taken away from the property that will continue to make it attractive to owner occupiers in the future like a really big balcony yeah no, no, that's unusual you know so something wow it's got a lovely big balcony it's where it can't be built out because it overlooks a nice reserve or some council land that won't be redeveloped um those sort of unique aspects you know anything that has an outlook that can't be built out or interrupted, there is a uniqueness to that. Now, we've had quite a few students um, buy units in Sydney. Um, We've certainly helped steer them in the right direction. And that's one of the benefits, I guess, of of being a member of Your First Home Buyer Guide. You do the course and also you sit around the campfire and we nut it out. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> we pull those places to pieces and then we put them back together again. <laughs> you know, buy garbage, you buy the good ones. All righty, we've got a question from Anna. My biggest challenge is finding somewhere worth living with a healthy deposit but very limited borrowing capacity. Over the time it's taken to manoeuvre into position where the banks are stopped laughing at me because of my chosen career. I don't even know what that is, but, you know. Oh, I'm so fascinated by that. I know. <laughs> I've watched everything I can afford get smaller and smaller and further away, and now it's a move to a mouldy unit in the country or a high-rise apartment in the city. Oh, it's tough, isn't it? it and it's, is it's tough. It's a common one, especially if your borrowing capacity has been falling over the past 18 months. Um, now, it's a really tough position to be in because you start with an expectation. You start, we call it shopping, you start shopping and, and, and going to inspections and having a look around 
and your expectations are built based on what you can afford at a point in time. If you don't move forward with that purchase at that point in time, then you've constantly got to reevaluate your 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 um, expectations and adjust your compromises because everything, everybody, you've got sixty million dollars. You're still going to compromise on something, you know, whether whether it's five hundred, five million, or or fifty million. You are going to compromise on things. So as your your borrowing capacity decreases, your expectations adjust, your compromises change in position property price. Um, and, and that can be really difficult. But there are some options that people can look at, Veronica, that isn't just about the traditional bank path. Yeah, look, I, the thing that is interesting, there's, I guess, more options coming up for first home buyers now in the shared equity space. And th- what that means is that another entity sort of helps you buy by taking uh, a piece of ownership of the property so you don't have to put as much money up, right? So it could be... Um, in some cases, the government, the federal government has a scheme. Uh, I think the Victorian government has a scheme. Uh, WA has something somewhat similar. And now there are even some private organisations coming in with these schemes, right? So they're designed to help first-time buyers get in the market. Be very, very careful about any of these schemes that encourage you to buy brand new. You know, I've come across some of these schemes where they're sort of almost like vendor finance where a developer is helping you buy into their building. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about being able to buy an established property with some assistance and going into effectively a co-ownership um, uh, arrangement. Now, any co-owner- Without having the flatmate. Without having the flatmate, yeah. So any co-owner, whether it be the government or whether it be a private um, business or a private um, equity firm, they should have in their sites- um, ways to help you buy a good asset because they're also buying into that asset. Yeah, they're making money off the equity that builds in the asset. Exactly. So there's certain things you have to read up on all the small print here. You have to understand that when you go to sell that property, obviously you've got to have to pay them back for their share. You've always got to give them a pro- part of their profit, of the, of the gain of the property. There's there's things to be taken into consideration in terms of the uh, you know when you own that when would you need to buy them out of that equity? Uh, what if you need to do make repairs and maintenance on the property or if you wanted to do improvements on the properties? There's lots of things to check out. But if you, I think a lot of people think these shared equity schemes is a great way to get in with a smaller deposit, but I don't think they do have income caps. So I think that it is something that definitely should would be worthwhile being looked into by somebody in your situation that has a good deposit but doesn't necessarily have the income to support a really good borrowing capacity. So that is something that I would think could be an option for somebody in your situation. Another one, of course, is um, getting into the gig economy and getting a second job, which, you know, I potentially that could be. But obviously, a li- there's a there's a choice here around, um, you know, what what career and and we're fascinated. But obviously, you know, that if that's looked at that way, maybe a non bank lender might be. Uh, an alternate route to look down um, who, who may have a different view. Obviously, the, the the more you go away from a traditional path where lending policies are clear, perhaps the more you'll pay in interest. So that is a trade-off. You may find someone who's prepared to lend you more money, but it might be at a higher interest rate for the risk that's associated with that. Yeah, and that is something, obviously, one of the reasons we recommend using a really good mortgage broker who can explain to you which lending institutions would view you as a good as a good prospect as a customer, 
um, and you know, and and to see whether there's any options there. If you've only been looking at sort of the mainstream banks and you've been dealing directly, you may not be aware of other institutions that might be more amenable to to um, lending to you. Good point. All right. So Derek asks, the biggest challenge at present is, should I buy in the Blue Mountains, which is close to current work, or should I buy a unit townhouse closer to Sydney to be closer to future job opportunities, friends, family, potentially meet more single people? All right. So. Well, that's a big one. That's <laughs> a very big one. Always. So the first, the first part of this answer is always think of the future, especially if you're young and single. Yes, because things change. <laughs> things change rapidly. Let me reassure you. <laughs> <laughs> and it might be, you know, if you're looking at meeting people, then, you know, it sounds like you're open to uh, to potentially partner out and that will change things, obviously. So, you know, we've just got here a list of some of the questions to ask yourself as you're working through what's right for you. And once again, that, that where to buy uh, tutorial is so useful as a response to all of these questions because you really have to look at yourself. And your own situation and stop asking people for their input. But now, how long are you going to be in your current role? Is this a transitional phase? Is it uh, an internship where you're there for a period of time? Is it until you seek another opportunity somewhere else? That that would be something. And look, how likely is it that you will end up moving to Sydney? It might be that you may not be in your current role that long, but you can see that there's actually a career path for you still in the mountains. I don't know what you do. So well, we don't know what you do. But yeah, and what are, you, what are your connections to the Blue Mountains? You know, are, is yeah. it just, just the job or is that where you grew up and you've got family there? You've mentioned family, friends and potential singles in your question, but these are questions to ask yourself um, to, to challenge your thinking about where is the right location. Because the other thing that came to me was where do you live now? If you're currently renting in the Blue Mountains, then you can answer the question as to how much do you enjoy living there. Right, but if you're currently living in Sydney and you're doing the commute, you'll know how manageable that commute is if you buy in Sydney because you're currently doing it. But if you've never done it, you got to then think to yourself, well, if I did buy in Sydney, thinking of the future, will the commute be more be manageable, or will I just hate it? You know, and that's an important thing to consider because you don't want to sort of buy somewhere thinking about the future, but now you're not happy. So rent vesting, I guess, could be an option. That's That sort of came to mind for me because um, this sounds like potentially someone who is in that fluid part of their career and their career is somewhat, um, the pathway is determined somewhat by geography. So if that's the case and there is potential that Sydney might be a stop on the way to something else as, as the world opens up and employment opportunities come back in on a global scale, it may be that Sydney is just a stepping stone to something else. And if that's the case, then perhaps looking at um, something that is a good asset for a long-term hold but isn't necessarily the, 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 the property that you're going to live in whilst you do that career move and, and get on that train towards whatever your career goals are, um, it may be that not living in it could provide that stability in a better location and get a better outcome in terms of capital growth, moving towards what might be your future home when you do decide to settle down in an area. Yeah. And we're talking, of course, house versus unit townhouse. I'm guessing, um, and, and this is literally guessing from the question here, but guessing that house might be an option if you stay up in the mountains, whereas if you move closer to Sydney, into Sydney, 
obviously property is generally more expensive and so a unit townhouse might be the option. And so I'd be thinking, will you, if you bought a unit, would you outgrow it before you're ready to make the move? You know, you buy it, um, even if you rented it out with with the thought that you want to move into it at some point in the future, you know, you've got to be thinking about these things because then if you buy that and then you can't buy the house that you want down the track, you know, so you, it's important to just be thinking about making sure this first step doesn't back you into a corner. Oh, such a good point. Actually, the corner. Yeah. The corner. Yeah, the corner. <laughs> All right. Let's look at, let's look at Kira. My husband and I are Australian citizens from the sunny coast, but we currently live overseas and will be international for the next three to four years. We see this as a great time to buy an investment property while we are earning good money here and not needing to pay rent. However, being overseas is very difficult to get ground-level face-to-face insight into the market, and that's what we talk about a lot in your first home buy guide, that we would get if we were actually back on the coast and able to open, go to open homes, speak to real estate agents in pers- person. Any suggestions? It's almost like she's written an ad for a buyer's agent. She has, and so <laughs> let's kick into that in a minute. But yeah, So buying from a distance is always challenging, even if you're really familiar with the area. You know, so because that what she's talking about is like you still got to get there on the ground, look at property, look at streets, look at you cannot buy online. People did it in COVID, and tell you what, there are regrets. Well, it is fraught with danger because what you see online can often omit things that you need to know. I mean, I think we've probably done episodes on that, haven't we? Yes, we have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Inspection marketing photos are not inspection photos. They're no replacement. Mm-mm, no way. In fact, we love doing in our business. I'm sure you do the same thing, Megan. Go through and take warts and all videos. Well, it's funny. Uh, we, we had an investor client who's overseas and um, he's a very analytical man. And he came back and he said, look, I honestly would be happy with 150 photos. I don't need 400 and 420 photos. So that was the amount of photos that was taken at a property because it is warts and all. You know, we want to make sure that people actually see what they need to see as if their eyes were seeing it. That's why I love doing videos. It's funny. Like Rachel loves to take a million photos. She's one of my team and I like to do the video. And the clients, we actually had a client that was a listener to this podcast, right? And I didn't know. And so um, I went and did an inspection for them one weekend. Um, Donna was looking after them. And, you know, I did my normal trademark, you know, walk through, have a little bit of a joke with the agent. All this is on the video and I'm pointing out things that I hate and pointing out things that I like and I'm really just warts and all. And, um, and at the end of it, I said, look, I hope you're okay with my total warts and all, uh, um, you know, commentary. And then I sent that to them and then I called them later to, to see how, what their thoughts were. And it was a classic. They were laughing. Oh my God, it just sounds like you on the podcast. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, so you listened to it. And they went, yes. So <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. I had no idea. And they're like, oh, my God, it's hilarious. Anyway, so that's what we do. Well, I do. I should say what I do. Just are who you are, right? It's my person. Exactly right. Nothing. You, you get me. I am the same across everything. Anyway, the other thing, too, that when you're overseas, there's a time lag in being able to come back and look at properties. And, and that can mean sometimes you miss out on good property or you end up paying more because you're not able to seize opportunities as they present themselves. So, so, or you get a friend or family or, or someone, a, you know, an old colleague or an old schoolmate to go and have a look at it for them. And that, that in and of itself represents inherent risk. Oh, huge. Because what, you know, they're like, oh, it's really nice. <laughs> and then they've got no idea what to look for. Well, they don't know what you're looking for. They don't <laughs> yeah. know what the investment fundamental, they don't know what your goals are. They don't know what your capacity is. Yeah, there's so many things that are going to be 
either misinterpreted or missed completely when you get someone who is not aware of your situation and what your needs are that mismatch a property. Um, yeah, what you don't buy is as important as what you do buy, um, but missing out on something that you should have bought or buying something you shouldn't have bought because their understanding wasn't right is, is you know, that's fraught with danger. So obviously in this situation, we'd highly recommend that you consider using a buyer's agent. And when using a buyer's agent, we always recommend using an experienced local specialist in that area. And certainly if one doesn't exist, many buyers will be better off learning how to do it themselves, right? Now, and that's going to be impossible if you're not there. So it's like- We can learn how to do it, but you can't get your feet on the ground. Yeah. If you're not there, we would not recommend, and you can't find a local experienced buyer's agent. Um, we would recommend you don't buy in that area, to be quite frank, because particularly if you're buying investment, it doesn't really matter where you buy. So you can, oh, well, it should say it does, but you don't it have does. to. Yes, yes. But you're better off finding a good buyer's agent in a good investment. In another area. There'll be other areas is what I'm trying to say. If you're buying for investment, there'll be other areas that make good investments. And if you're buying because you want to go back there and live, that's different. But if you're buying purely as investment, you can you can invest any anywhere that is a good area with good investment fundamentals. And if you're going to find a buyer's agent, you can find a local specialist. Now, if you can't find one, find an area where you can, because it's sad but true that the barrier to entry to become a buyer's agent has been sort of been falling in some areas in recent years, and it's led to a proliferation of newbies with little experience. I can tell you that if you've done the Your First Home Buyer Guide course, you will know more than some of these new buyer's agents. So just all buyer's agents are not necessarily good, which does lead to our next question. Mm. Ian asked, um, the biggest challenge is choose the first home to buy under our budget. And it's really hard to trust the buyer's agents because generally they have agreements with real estate agents and developers. Oh, wow. We are totally lost in what to do. So I wonder who you've been talking to. Exactly. So here we just want to make a big distinction between a buyer's agent, independent and exclusive, an independent exclusive buyer's agent versus one who calls himself a buyer's agent but is actually a salesperson. Jess, mm, mm. that concerns me because if that's if that's been Ian's experience, I'm sort of reading into that question. It's not just once that this has happened. Yes. Generally, they have, or or he's been online checking forums, or he's been he's been asking. There are buyers agents out there that do not charge their clients because they get they get paid by the developers or by agents, and generally they are they're employed by the agents. Not even, not even always. Some of them actually are property advisors. And they just have relationships with a handful of developers and, and it's effectively like they're a commission agent. So they're not technically employed. Some are, right? But but some of them are like commission agents. They just say, so, oh, no, I only choose really reputable developers and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, if they're paid by the developer and they're not being paid by you, the buyer, then they're not working for you. So as Megan says, they're working for the developer. They're effectively working for themselves. You know, they're, they're not working with your best interests in heart. Yeah. If you're not paying them, they're not working for you. They're exactly. working for an outcome or a deal. It's all about who pays them. So a free buyer's agent is a false economy. 
Yeah, it's sad but true. And a lot of a lot of uh, I've got to say a lot of them feel really helpful. And I think that's the challenge as a first home buyer is to sort of weed out people who want to be helpful to you, but you are not paying for advice, are not working for you. They're working for somebody else. Whatever that motivation is, what what where they're coming from is not to tell you not to buy a property. It's to get you to buy a property. And I think a good agent, you know, what I just said before, what you don't buy is just as important, if not more important than what you do buy. So having someone who actually says to you, hang on, here's the red flags on this property. It looks good for a lot of reasons, but we don't recommend you go ahead with it. Decision's always yours, you know. A buyer's agent's job is to advise, yours is to decide. That's the ethos that we have in our business. But if someone is just constantly you know, pushing you in a direction of this is a great property, it's in a great area, it's got great growth potential, high growth area, these sorts of words, if it's all just positive about what they're trying to get you to buy, then they're not telling you about the risks and they're not telling you not to buy something because it doesn't meet your needs. Particularly if they are just referring brand new property to you, particularly because there's a lot of money to be made by people who recommend brand new property, right? Developers pay very Massive big commissions. commissions, huge commissions. Yeah, way more than you get as a buyer's agent. Let me reassure yes. you. Yep, yep, yep. We'd both be making a lot more money if we were in that side of the business, but we just have ethics. <laughs> well, we, we chose a different path and that was to get people to buy really good quality assets and to open their eyes to what's good and what's not. And that means sometimes saying, this is not the right thing for you. Yeah. So that's an important thing. A good buyer's agent is not an order taker. It is a trusted advisor. Somebody who's giving you that advice, as Megan says, is prepared to say, don't buy that. That's a really good buyer's agent. A good buyer's agent is got lots of experience. They've been through a few market cycles, right? Or they work in a team where that, that experience is in the team. They specialize in a local area and they also have very robust due diligence processes. And so, in fact, I've got my team working through exactly how many points are in our due diligence because we never sat down and pulled them all out and counted them. And I don't know, I've got a theory, it's 97. There's a lot of things that we look at when we buy a property and I'm sure you're the same, Megan. And then there's property-specific things. You know, you, you go into one property and it's got, um, depending on, and that's why checklists can be really good and helpful, but you also have to have the knowledge to be able to go, there's something else here that is a bit different. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're buying a house for stables. I don't know, bad example, but do you know what I mean? Like you, <laughs> or a giant tree rural, out the back. Yeah, if you're buying rural, is it septic or sewerage? Yeah, those aren't the questions that we ask or investigate in properties that are in town, but they would be, uh, you know, a situation-specific kind of thing that you'd know, have to add to a due diligence checklist. Yeah, or ret retaining wall. There's just so many that are specific to the property. So these are things, actually, we do teach in your first home buyer guide, the due diligence process, what information you need and where to find it. Really important. But let me tell you, because... As I mentioned earlier, it's a low barrier to entry to become a buyer's agent. You can actually become a buyer's agent without having learnt any of that stuff. I know it's scary, but true. So that's why you, if you're going to use one, need to know how to work out who's a good one and who's not a good one. And look, probably on each of our websites and certainly on the Real Estate Buyers Agents Association of Australia, the REBA website, um, there are questions to ask. And, and, and if you're going to go down that path, as we say, you do the course, you probably know more than some of the new buyers agents who haven't got the depth of experience. But 
uh, there are good questions that you can ask to help you weed through um, who actually has the experience, particularly in the areas. You know, we have specific questions that we suggest people ask about Brisbane because there are certain houses in certain streets that we know have overland flow versus ones that are elevated, have no issues, but we know that, you know, that one is next to the Rebels clubhouse, spiky clubhouse. So <laughs> there, there are local knowledge things that if you're going to pay a buyer's agent, you want to make sure they know that local stuff in depth because the last thing you want to do is move into a, a property and find that the parties are going on at 4am every single night. Well, that would be a nightmare. Well, even today's campfire, Megan, we're recording this on a, on a Wednesday and every Wednesday at one o'clock e Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Daylight Time. Yes. We we have a live Q&A, which we call Campfire for all of our students. And, you know, today we were answering questions that are specific due diligence questions about two particular properties that we've got um, students looking at at the moment very seriously and, you know, looking through those issues that are unique to those particular properties and, and pointing them in the direction of how to find that stuff out. We want our we want our students all buying well and buying with their eyes wide open. And that's the sort of stuff we've got loads of experience. We've both been in this this in this business for over 20 years now each. So we we know what to look for, right? And that's one of the reasons why experience is so important. Just a quick note, right? This course that we've been mentioning only costs $990. And you get direct access to us, as I was just explaining, to help guide you through your negotiations. But if you're not quite ready to dive in and do the full course, right, that's 10 modules that take you from go to woe throughout the entire property buying process, we do have a Kickstart bundle, right? The Kickstart bundle has three tutorials in it. We mentioned one earlier in, uh, in response to a number of the questions here, and that is the where to buy tutorial. So that helps you work out that right mix of price, property, and position for you and work out what to buy and where. So that's a really powerful tutorial. We also got in there the Stepping Stone uh, tutorial, so the Stepping Stone Strategy tutorial, and that is what Megan mentioned with her own property. That's how she ended up getting to this level of buying, of being able to own and have, have bought and renovated to this degree because she started and, and started climbing that ladder. I've done the same, very similar thing. And so that tutorial is in, included. And we've also mentioned the possibility of rent vesting for some first home buyers. There's the where to invest tutorial. So if you want to get a kickstart, get an understanding about how we do things and how we present this information, that's only $99. So dive in. You can get all of those three. That'll get you started, get you pointed in the right direction. In this episode, we've only touched on a tiny part of the huge amount of things you need to know to become an educated first home buyer. There is so much more for you to do. You can learn all of the steps in the right order and avoid all of the mistakes that others have made in our 10-step online course for first home buyers. If you'd like to learn more about the right process and avoid making rookie errors, become an educated home buyer. Head over to the website, check out your first home buyer guide the course that we have created for you. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you've liked what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. It helps other people find us. And of course, I know it's a bit cringy, but we're going to ask for five stars. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with more priceless stuff.